You're listening to The Middle, the show about the Australia-China connection. We're bringing greater balance and broad expertise to all aspects of the Australia-China relationship. Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Middle, the show about Australia's relationship with China. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey, and my co-host is Wanning Sun, and our producer today is the wonderful Caitlin McHugh. Wanning and I come to you from the University of Technology, Sydney. The Middle. The Middle is inspired by the simple desire to shed more light than heat on Australia-Chinese relations. To do that, every week we explore one aspect of the relationship with two subject area experts. And if you'd like to catch up with previous episodes in either English or Mandarin, please go to themiddleau.com. You can even see what we look like if that takes your fancy. So, Wanning, perhaps you can tell us about this week's topic and guests. Well, the show is about China-Australian relationships, right? But uh, Australia's China policy is not just about government reactions or diplomatic maneuvers or trade wars, right? It's also about how this relationship um, changes and harms and benefits and affects the uh, industry, the business and the ordinary consumers. And it's also about how it affects how ordinary people in Australia drink and eat and carry on in our everyday lives. This is so important. Absolutely. Mm. So, so when you go home tonight, listeners, and sit down with a glass of wine, glass of red, have a think about some, some facts that I'm about to give you. For instance, talking about wine export, right? Last time, the trade relationship between, with Australia uh, went a little bit tricky. It was the wine. And this time, it's the coal, right? But what wine exp- uh, export to the U.S. had actually declined. But export to China has grown dramatically. By April last year, Australia saw an annual increase in export to China by 51%. 51%, that's insane. That's, that's $1 billion wow. we're looking at. That's incredible. Yeah, which is one of the reasons mm. why we're talking about wine and tea. Yes, we'll talk about trade, but we'll also talk about the culture of wine and tea. So to help us understand more about wine and tea in Australia and China, we have invited two eminently qualified experts – Diane Hu is Deputy Director of the Australian Studies Centre of Beijing Foreign Studies University and Deputy General Secretary of the Chinese Association for Australian Studies. Ms Hu teaches, uh, teaches Australian economy and its economic relations with China, which apparently is the only course in China featuring the Australian economy. Is mm. that right? Yeah. That's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? Thanks. And uh, Jing Hong uh, Chang is currently an associate professor at Southern University of Science and Technology in Xiexian, China, and a visiting fellow with the Chinese Studies Center, University of Sydney, for July and August of 2018. So just had this great time in Sydney, I hope. Jing Hong had her PhD on the topic uh, of the pure tea and since then extended to study the consumption of wine for a postdoctoral research at ANU. So she has got wine and tea covered. You are like the perfect dinner party guest, Jing Hong. She absolutely is. Let's start with you, Jing Hong. I know you're an anthropologist, right? So, uh, and I also know that you wrote a PhD on pura tea. 
Now, what what is Pura Tea, and how did you find out? What did you find out from your PhD thesis on this topic? Well, I chose Pura Tea as my PhD topic,、um, basically because it's a tea produced in Yunnan, in my hometown.、Um, it's called Pura. It's actually named after a place in southern Yunnan, and、uh-huh. which used to be a distribution and taxation center.、Okay. Um, but Pura is a very complex tea category. Um, we cannot say it is green tea or it is black tea. It is something in between,、mm-hmm. and、uh, in some ways, it has、um, kind of involved、uh, elements of、uh, different kinds of tea. That's why it is complex.、Um, so this complexity also made me curious of studying it. But then, in early two thousands, it became extraordinarily fashionable, and people all said it can be aged. This is also quite new to Chinese tea culture, because most teas for the Chinese you just throw it away once it is over, say,、uh, two years old. But poor tea can be aged.、Um, this is very strange. And、uh, but in the market, there were so many definitions about poor, and、uh, people find it very hard to verify. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meanwhile, there were so many counterfeits. And、uh, for example, one-year-old poor tea is declared to be ten、um, years old,、right. and in this case, it can be sold much,、um, much more expensive. And、um, so, as an anthropologist, I'm in,、um, I feel it's very interesting and also important to discover what has happened to this tea. And I followed the supply chain of this tea from its production in Yunnan. Um, to its trade and consumption to other places of China,、um, my research first discovered that、uh, the popularity of poor tea is very much shaped by the consumption desire、um, in post-reform China,、um, the desire of Chinese for wealth, for health, for taste, and for culture. And for example, people are using、um, uh, poor tea as a kind of investment tool and to cultivate a sophisticated tasting palate. And they are concerned with the healthy benefits of the tea,、wow. and also they regard it as a kind of、um, special thing to represent the so-called traditional Chinese culture. What's interesting about what you just said there, in terms of the Australia-China's relationship, of course, is that here you have a kind of growing health consciousness that is expressed through、mm-hmm. the, through the tea. So, if I was an Australian tea maker or exporter, I could interpret your res- research in that way. Is that right? Yeah, sure. This actually is something、uh, I think is a kind of similarities between between my tea research and wine research, because wine consumers and tea are both、um, very concerned with the healthy benefit of the drinks.、Um, yeah, the, uh, uh, either for like wine、uh, consumers in China or tea consumers now in Australia, it's very similar. Yeah, and I I personally、uh, have found that drinking poor tea after very heavy meal. After a very greasy,、mm. heavy meal, can help you、uh, f- uh, feel lighter and kind of degrease your stomach. So,、uh, how did you decide to move from tea to wine, and, did, and how did you develop a distinct interest in and、uh, wine in Australia, Jinghong?、Um, right. Um, so, when I was studying poor, actually heard from a lot of people in the poor industry saying that they want to learn from the wine industry in terms of、uh, how to standardize the quality. And、uh, regulation in the market because、um, for poverty, there, as I mentioned, there were so many counterfeits. But uh, uh, people find it very hard to give a very clear and singular definition for this tea. But obviously, wine,、uh, in terms of regulation, has been developed more mature in other cultures. So there comes in the question that 
standardization is so hard for China, but it could be possible in another uh, culture, for example, maybe, or even maybe better in other uh, other drinking culture like France or Australia. And also, I found very hard to uh, interpret some of the unique Chinese concepts, especially about tasting into English, and maybe there doesn't exist the equivalent English terms. And then I was suggested by a number of people to look into literature about cheese, about chocolate, about wine. And I found wine is the most comparable. And there there are so many interesting similarities and differences between tea and wine that I can uh, compare. So uh, a similar question for you, Diane, I think. You know, you're approaching wine from the perspective of trade. So why is wine such a good case study to understand the Australia-Chinese mm-hmm. trade relationship in general? <laughs> Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, because Australia-China trade relations, as we have all seen, is that it has under uh, it has been undergoing profound changes, and one of the most important changes is the shifting focus of trade from and also investment, I might say, from resources and energy to agriculture and service. So, for me, I would say wine arguably is the best case to illustrate the complementarity between China and Australia. And we know uh, you know it, know it better than me that Australia is known for its reasonably priced quality wine and the Chinese wine consumption as we as a lot of uh, people have been um, forecasting that it, the wine consumption in China is expected to grow at a 6% and is expected to overtake the US uh, in 2022 to become the largest wine market mm. so um, we have seen huge potential and prospect in this market even after chapter and before chapter 2 I would say mm. and what we have heard back in China China is that the embassy in Beijing and also the Austrade, they both have been hailing the wine sector as the success story of Chafta. So it's so important. But having said that, I think... um, the wine industry is also a good case study in that the challenges represented in this sector is inflective. It's, it's a good example of the gaps and also obstacles for others for the similar agricultural products from Australia. And I'm sure that they will confront similar problems later. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So just to follow up on that, so I, it's one. I mean, six percent growth annual. Uh, Growth is a remarkable result. That's clearly faster than any other product at this point. Mm. But as you say, uh, there is it makes well, as it gets bigger. Of course, the trade relationship based on say wine becomes more vulnerable, as we have seen recently. Say, for instance, with coal exports. So, to what extent do you think, uh, what, if you were thinking of being an Australian trader in wine, what would you need to know to understand the dynamics of that relationship? Because it's not as simple as it uh, appears on the outside, right? I would say there have been uh, various versions of stories about uh, first the wine part, the wine trade, and the more recently the cold one. I think uh, it will still take some time for us to know for sure what has happened. Mm. But what I can say uh, from uh, my knowledge in trade, also my talk with um, all those people who are involved in export, is that export is extremely complicated and it involves a lot of procedures and for formalities. So it's hard to say, really. But uh, back to your question, I think the golden boy always gets uh, most attention. So (laughs) you wouldn't be surprised by that. No, not at all. Not at all. It's an interesting dynamic, though, because Australian producers are probably, you know, more natural 
uh, to export to, say, the US, another English language. Is there other unique uh, sort of things that uh, exporters need to know in terms of exporting to China? When you export things to other countries, like as what we say products in this case, you need to understand the local market. You need、mm. to understand the people. And unfortunately, China is、uh, a huge market, which、uh, maybe the greatest number for potential drinkers in the world. <laughs> But also, the culture can be so different, and that's、mm. pretty much what you and、um, Wanning and also、uh, Jiang has just said about that. It's just the culture and also society can be so different. Absolutely. Now, talking about consumption of wine and tea, I noticed that uh, recently, um, uh, well, last year perhaps, you gave a talk to the Australian Institute of International Affairs when you were here, and you talked about the similarities and differences between Australia and China in terms of their consumption of wine and tea. So, what are the differences and what are the similarities? Could you、uh, say a little bit about that? In general,、um, tea and wine has lots of interesting um, similarities. Um, for example, they are both relaxing and social drink, and there are, as I mentioned, there are lots of tasting descriptions that we can compare. And in terms of of production, there is the concept, French concept, terroir. Which also, although doesn't exist in in the Chinese context, but it is in, very much embodied by the tea case. So both wine and tea care very much about、um, the differentiation between single origin、uh, or blended materials. So these are、um, very much similar. And now my uh, comparison uh, is more focusing on wine in China and tea in Australia. Because I think、um, wine Australia and tea in China、um, have been、uh, developed more maturely, and they are more established. But、um, the, the 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 other side, wine in China and tea in Australia, I think they are still quite new.、Um, they are non-established, and they are still kind of exotic or fashionable in either country. And for tea in Australia, here I'm referring、um, not to Uh, milk and tea that has been had in Australia for a long time, the English style. Rather, I'm referring to the new tea culture, pure,、mm. uh, pure tea, loose leaf tea, a kind of influence from East Asian countries.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, for the wine case in China and tea case in Australia, I think、um, both of them are lacking a kind of what I call lack of consumption confidence.、Mm-hmm. Um, I refer to. Uh, a kind of lack of understanding and intimacy about the culture where this drinking,、uh, this commodity originates. So, for example, in Australia, and I have met a lot of people when they drink tea, they wonder how they should drink it, in what ways they should prepare it, and even some people asked whether I should toast before I drink the tea.、Um, and in China,、um, although China is producing a lot of、uh, wine as well. But the Chinese consumers do think that the domestically produced wine in China is lagging behind other countries like fr-、uh, France or Australia a lot, and a lot of educational classes are now、um, run in urban China, and they are、uh, held in a very much ritualized way, but sometimes too serious and forgetting about that wine could be a relaxing drink, and this is what I call a lack of consumption confidence. Uh, Diane, I noticed that、uh, you were recently in Melbourne giving a talk、uh, about wine trade and the Oz-China relations in general. 
And one of your arguments is that Australia's success in selling wine to China, you mentioned it a little bit before, is not as a result directly, not necessarily only a result of CHAFTA, which is the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, for those people not sure with their chapters, their acronyms, but due to the migration from China. Maybe you can unpack that a little bit for us. Sure. Um, I was invited by Professor John Mackin, who's the director of La Trobe's uh, China Studies Research Centre and also head of the Chinese Studies Association of Australia to give the talk last Wednesday. So uh, I tried to unravel the untold Chinese stories behind Australia's booming wine export to China. So basically what I try to argue is that there are many people who say that or assume that Australia's astounding growth should be attributed to drivers like Chafta, like um, quality Australian wine, and also China's emerging middle class. Um, I would say um, after research trips to Australia's wine-producing regions, he said uh, the more recent Chinese immigrants to Australia, uh, not really under the more exclusive 188 or uh, the skilled workers uh, subclass or streams, Mm -hmm. but more business ones like the 132 business talent visa stream, Mm -hmm. and they have become important drivers to this astounding growth, even things prior to the chapter. Wang Ying just now was talking about the growth, and in fact, the growth rate of the wine export to China um, one year before Chafta was 66%. It's even higher than what we have seen now. Right. Yeah. So that's very interesting. Does just If you were um, selling Australian wine to China, would it help if you put a kangaroo or a cockatoo on your label? I think Yellowtail has kangaroo on its oh, label, Indeed, that's why it? I'm mentioning it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was... I was uh, yeah, last Wednesday at the seminar, and uh, there were quite some Australians who said that I would never drink a yellowtail. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Well, so. Yes, well, that goes to the cultural sort of yeah, anthropology of Australia, doesn't it? It Jean is. Yeah. It is. So, yeah, so it doesn't help. I mean, if I wanted to start exporting wine to China, uh, should, I, should I put a kangaroo on it or not? I think when you put a kangaroo on a wine bottle, it's, it, you're trying to say it's Australian. Oh, then you have to find out the perception of the Chinese or the image that mm. they would associate with Australia. Not necessarily a good one, really. <laughs> can be good. <laughs> can be good. So I should put a picture of Steve Irwin on it. Yeah. yeah. Jing Hong, I think you should say a little bit more about the cultural insights that you have about tea and wine and from the consum- consumer's point of view. Right. Um, while by mentioning like lack of consumption confidence, I'm <clears throat> mainly referring to that um, the people in uh, in Australia, uh, when they drink tea, they are not quite uh, uh, completely understanding what tea is. Or when the Chinese are drinking wine in China, when they are drinking uh, imported wine, they are not co- totally understanding what the kind wine culture is. Of course, there are. Uh, be, uh, this is much better now because there are so many interested groups. They are developing more and more sophisticated knowledge. But according to the, this general public, I think this knowledge and this cultural understanding is still not enough. And for example, for instance, there are so many educational classes run um, um, by people, in, uh, including those Australian wine representatives in China. I think that that's very good. They, they are teaching the Chinese um, how to develop. Uh, tasting, good tasting skills, and how to select good quality wine. These are all good. Um, but I think there are something um, that they have to deliver together, which is about the culture. Mm. Um, 
and at so far as I as I mentioned, there is a high cultural expectation mm-hmm. behind the Chinese aspiration for drinking wine. Um, and but what is Australia culture is still not so clear according mm-hmm. to the general public in in China. So I think for Australian winemakers in China, if they could more interesting cultural stories. Uh, including um, Australian lifestyle or Australian characteristics, of course, nature, cantrus, those are all interesting stories. But they need more detail that can be um, put together into the bottle for the Chinese to appreciate along with the good taste of the Australian wine. Just yeah. on that, I was interested in taste. Um, I spend a little bit of time hanging around with French people these days, and they often say that they don't like Australian, say, for instance, Shiraz, because it's too big, too much tannin, too much alcohol. Uh, how do the Chinese, I know this is a very broad generalization, but is taste, the taste of a, an Australian wine, an important sort of cultural factor? Well, the um, the good news is actually, according to my experience, I think a lot of Chinese quite like the Shiraz, the (laughs) full-bodied and the robust taste of Australian wine. And especially those people who used to to drink strong alcohol, Chinese alcohol, but now for certain kind of reasons, for for instance, health uh, concern, they have to give up of drinking those kind of strong alcohol and they are moving um, into wine. Um, and this, and so their their past habit um, tell them they want something with more strong stronger alcohol and in in this way Australia Shiraz is perfect for them. This man said to me, a Chinese man who used to drink alcohol, he said, "This is per this is uh, much better for me um, because I I like I like wine with strong alcoholic elements." So, um, uh, but of course there are other cases. For instance, for women, Chinese women who are made perhaps beginners for tasting wine, um, they may prefer the opposite way. Mm-hmm. They prefer something uh, sweeter. Turning around to Australia in a tea, in a tea context, um, what kind of culture stories do you think the Australian um, tea drinkers should actually learn about? And what kind of etiquette and protocols, if you like? Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, Yes or no, but um, but actually the the fact that I discovered in Australia is that not so many people are very much interested in the brewing process. I was told by my informants that uh, the majority of Australians are more interested in the final taste of the tea uh-huh. rather than the way of preparing them. And oh. for instance, for the Chinese, um, there are the so-called zhishahu, um, little yes. um, pot um, that can uh, help you to keep the aroma and the taste of the tea. But uh, for many Australians, they are still preferring larger size of pot, um, which is more convenient, of course. But somehow you 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 may lose the the aroma or the essence of the tea if you don't use a small pot. Um, so although a lot of Australians uh, are asking in what ways they should prepare the tea, but I think what they care most is the result rather than the process. But actually, for tea culture, the brewing process is highly important, and in the process helps you to enjoy and to learn um, a kind to get a kind of pre taste. So in this regard, I think, yes, they should worry. But uh, of course, um, this has to be adapted into the local local culture of Australia. Mm. And if you have um, like an Australian style party rather than Chinese style party, of course, you have to change to the Australian style. Um, But I think behind this worrying for brewing tea, um, what I discovered is another interesting thing is that the Australians are also worrying about a kind of 
uh, Australian cultural identity. And this is um, from the words of my some of my informants. They told me that for learning about Chinese tea is that um, because it's not because they can gain a kind of Chinese cultural identity or becoming kind of that Chinese culture, but somehow this helps them um, to balance their struggle for a kind of Australian cultural identity. And so far, there is not one um, clear um, thing that can be called Australian tea culture, although Australia has been drinking English tea for ages. Um, we are getting close to the end of the show, but I have, ask Diane I, have, I have many questions for Diane. One of them is, I guess, a very broad question, which is what advice would you give to the wine industry and the peak bodies of that industry in terms of trade with China in terms of in, in wine? Uh, I would say that um, Australia's wine has seen tremendous growth in recent years, mm-hmm. but it's just a start. And really, um, Peter, you just now brought about uh, brought out the topic of French wine. I think it's it's, a, it's really a great point, because after all, uh, French wine still dominated the imported wine in China, and with about thirty four percent, with Australia accounting for about eight. 18 or 19 percent, something like that. And also another aspect of this is just that the Chinese drinkers, uh, they came to know and understand wine through French wine, mm-hmm. not Australian wine. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the picture is that for many of the Australian wineries, they need to educate the Chinese drinkers about the Australian style of wine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also there's something else I want to talk about is just that um, please don't forget that French wine uh, now in, chi- in the Chinese market is way ahead of Australian wine with a 14% tariff. Yes. Wow. And then uh, Australian wine is uh, seeing uh, competitors from America, from Spain, from Italy, yeah. from South Africa, and Chile. Chile. Yeah. So really, um, though they would, of course, uh, focus on a slightly different price range. What I would say is that... of I mean, uh, in terms of companies, I think it's really important to understand the local market, mm-hmm. including the local culture. And you you should really involve the local talents who mm-hmm. not only understand the local market, but also appreciate and uh, value Australian wine. And actually, uh, uh, during my trips to uh, some of Australia's wine-producing regions, and including South Australia, of course, and this is exactly part of my research um, I was talking about just now, is that many of these um, Chinese immigrants, um, because of their um, already uh, strong or very rich experience in the Chinese market and also strong business connections to the Chinese market, they would use their know-how to help it. Like this is one company who would uh, talk to uh, local Australian wineries to try to, mm-hmm. it's more like a tailor make mm-hmm. the taste to mm-hmm. cater to the Chinese palate. So this is really something very inspiring. And also um, there's this, this one Chinese um, winery who's um, has been focusing on just the premium wine. And I think this is both. But mm-hmm. I think this is really important for the future, uh, future Chinese drinkers who would come to understand and also appreciate the Australian wine. And before we leave you, uh, I'm interested in your own wine taste. Shiraz or uh, what? Uh, as my husband would say, yes, women always prefer Shiraz. <laughs> but 
I would I would say that um, the shrubs in Australia can be so diverse. Mm, yeah, true. when you're looking at shiraz, there are so many types. So uh, for me, mostly I would drink shiraz, and if I'm with my husband, I would drink cap. And then if I'm just by myself without a meal, I would drink something like uh, um, blanc sauvignon. Oh. Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, okay. Yes. All right. Yes. So you know, I think one. one we one probably of, should ask Jing Hong what she drinks. Yeah, too. yeah. Oh, well, I'm about to, or you're about to. But so I, I should say it'd be great to be a researcher in wine. I must make that one of my new jobs. Over to you, Wang. <laughs> so Jing Hong, what's what's your favorite wine? I do like Australian Shiraz, but I also like Pinot Noir. Um, and Pinot Noir in Australia is also diverse. Um, mm. So depending upon at what occasions that I'm drinking and, and with very good friends, I'd say, um, yes, we, we do drink a lot of um, Pinot Noir, which is more expensive probably because. Mm. And sometimes uh, with female friends, we drink more white wine together, uh, like Chardonnay. So as a cultural anthropologist, what would you say to the Australian wine exporters and the business people? What do they need to know? Um, Right. As an anthropologist, I I would say I I know a lot of Australian wine people are expecting um, a lot of Chinese tourist customers to come to Australia to experience the wine culture and to maybe bring some bottles back to China. Mm-hmm. But I think it is also um, important for the Australian winemakers maybe to visit China and to make more friends with the Chinese. And in another presentation, I have proposed an idea which can be called um, understanding wine by understanding tea. Um, so in a way that if, if for winemakers wine, um, wine in Australia, if you understand tea culture, which is a kind of essence for China, you may be able to catch um, the demand of the Chinese wine consumers, probably. I, I like that, and a, that's a great point to finish on. I'd like to thank our guests, Diane Hu and uh, Jing Hong Chang, uh, and thank you very much for listening to The Middle. As I mentioned, you can find previous episodes of The Middle on themiddleau.com and on the 2SER website. And until next week or next time, it's goodbye from me, Peter Frey. And it's goodbye from me, Wining Sound. Thank you very much for listening.